Greetings and welcome to Inside the Master's Studio, a behind-the-screens look into the art of GMing. Today we're joined by Steve. Hello. I'd like to start from the very beginning. How did you first get involved with tabletop RPGs? Uh, that would have been, I think, October 2004, I want to say. I think it was. I think that's it, because uh, I was in my second-to-last year at high school at the time, and we had a strategy and tactics club at, Cal- at uh, high school, which is basically, here's where you go to play, like, t- you know, like, t- card games, like Magic Gathering, or, in some cases, D&D. And I was mostly going there throughout high school, playing Magic Gathering, using a deck my brother lent me. But eventually he decided he wanted to sell his magic cards, so I had to find something else to do there. And I happened across a couple of guys that were playing Dungeons and Dragons, and they were like, hey, we can always use another player, you want in? And that's basically how I met Mark, who has been the long-term GM throughout most of our years. But at the moment, I'm doing my own campaign for the first time, like, long-term. But back then, we played mostly 3.5 D&D, but we haven't played that in a long time now. So, did you have any interest in Dungeons & Dragons before they got you into it? I never had played it beforehand, so it was more a curiosity of like, okay, yeah, I'll give this a shot. Like, my first character, as I'm sure everybody's first character is, was terrible. He was an elf ranger that I named Link, even though he didn't use a sword ever. He used a bow. Because I was 16 at the time. Did you try to turn him into Link, or did you just use the name... Uh, mostly just used the name. I mean, he had a sword. He never swung it, I don't think. But, like, he mostly just used his bow. He had, like, the multi-shot profession or whatever. Or proficiency. How long did you have that character? Uh, we basically would always have campaigns last for, like, the beginning of the school year up until the end. And then do, like, a shorter one during the summer break. And then start another long-term one when the school year began again. So I'd say, like, since I joined in October or so, probably until, like, May or so that year, when that campaign ended. Because of that experience, do you prefer having self-contained campaigns? Uh, It's definitely a case of, like, I feel like with the campaign I'm running, which is only going to be about 20 sessions long, and we just finished up session 7 yesterday, that I can tell a better story in a shorter amount of campaigns. Because like, usually when Mark runs a campaign, he does like smaller story arcs, and it just happens that the same characters encounter those story, those different stories. Whereas the one I'm doing, it's like, yeah, there are different story arcs, but there's like an ongoing mystery behind all of it that connects them all together. Like The longest one I did before this was only like a five-session-long mini-campaign, which didn't really last very long. When you're planning on having a campaign with a set number of sessions... Do you have to do anything beyond the scope of your normal GM powers in order to make sure it lasts the set number of encounters? Not really. Like, it's basically just, like, as it is, Mark usually is the GM, like I mentioned, and this is just me being like, hey, I'd like to run something and try something longer for a change. And I told them it would be as long as one of Mark's campaigns, but they also said, like, yeah, you know, it depends on how long you want it to go to. So it's basically just a case of like each of these little story arcs are like five sessions long for mine. And I feel like, you know, that's a pretty good amount for the first shot of trying this out for myself. And what's the setting that you're running in right now? Uh, well, we're using Hero 6 Edition. It's, ba- it's based on like the old uh, Champions book series. 
And uh, we basically have it set in the Ruby universe. Yeah, Richard T. Some weird, like, anime kids going to school to train to be monsters setting. It, it basically came out of the course of, like, one day when I was driving home from work, like, a year ago, I basically decided the idea of just, like, coming up with crazy weapon combinations, because in that series, like, oh, this person's sword turns into a sniper rifle, because why not? And I just came up with, like, more and more silly, dumb ideas, along with, like, silly, like, innate superpower, because, like, each character in that series has a thing called a semblance, which is, like, their... Like, like, this is my unique power kind of thing that I have that's not related to the weapon. And it just kind of snowballed from there of like, oh no, I'm just making too many of these. I can't let them just sit here. And then I came up with the idea of telling them that, of like, hey, would you guys like to do a silly teenage animation like campaign? And they were like, sure, that sounds nuts. That sounds ridiculous. And why did you use the system that you're using for it? Uh, Hero is one that we've been using for, I'd say, like, five years now or so. We started with Hero 5th Edition, and it's because Hero lets us make any sort of character in any sort of campaign setting we want, since it's like a point-by system where you like you put, spend points to increase characteristics, like build up skills, or make powers, and you can basically make powers any way you want. Like, as opposed to in D&D, where like, oh, these are all like the level 1 spells, you get to pick which ones you want. This one's like, okay, if you want like a blast, which it, it could be like an energy blast or a physical blast, for, first off, like you can make it be like a gun or a spell, but also you can add like, do you want armor piercing on it? Do you want it to be an AoE? Do you want it to like affect desolidified characters? Because desolidified characters are really hard to hit otherwise. And it just lets you make up like tons of different ideas where we've done like Fantasy Asia, which basically became Avatar The Last Airbender after a fashion. In it, we've done space operas, we've done, like, classic D&D, but with a higher mortality rate. We And, you know, lets us just do whatever we can come up with, more or less. For the Ruby campaign you're running, are you using the characters from Ruby or original characters? Well, we had this set, like, 59 years before the show, which I think is, like, 21 years after the events of, like, a big war that happened in the show. So it's like they're part of the first generation before that. So yeah, we're just doing like our own separate thing. Not tied to the show. So the players can basically do whatever they want and justify it. Yeah, they can just have fun. Because like, as it is, like, Greg, one of the character, one of the people that plays a character in it, he's watches the show alongside me, so we're both up to date with uh, Volume 4 that they're up to. Uh, Mark and Tynan ended up watching Season 1, just to get an idea of what the show was like. And then Mark ended up watching season two, but he hasn't proceeded since then. So it was basically just a case of they wanted to have some sort of an idea of what that world was like, along with like what the characters are capable of when they were making their characters. Do you have a favorite weapon that they've come up with? They've come up with some pretty nonsense stuff, like as opposed to like most of the characters just being like, oh like I've got my like Scythe Sniper or my like Grenade Launcher Hammer Tynan came up with a character that has like a lance that changes up to have different uh, like properties like armor piercing and damage negation in case somebody has damage reduction but he also created a motorcycle with his character where it has like different uh, targeting systems where he can make it easier for him to hit somebody or like emit smoke screen so it can be harder for people to hit him but he also gave it like killer razor wheels so, like, it can just, like, run run over people. 
or an Excel so fly. So he just went completely nuts with just making it like, well, Tiny doesn't really like anime, but if he's going to be an anime character, he's going to go all out. So he just made it as ridiculous as possible. Is there a central villain? So far, they haven't met them yet, but they're getting close to there. Can you divulge what the special weapon for that character is? Uh, basically, I just feel like he's just going to have a sword and just be kind of hard to hit, like really hurt. Like He's just going to be more focused on like being a, an annoyance to take down rather than having a crazy nonsense weapon. In a world of crazy nonsense weapons, a normal weapon is the crazy I mean, weapon? Well, some people have normal weapons. Like One of the main characters in the show, John, just has a normal sword and shield that his grandparents used in the war that happened at the beginning, like 80 years before the show takes place. It's like, not everybody has ridiculous weapons. They might just be skilled with them and just have a normal sword. Fair enough. Has anything happened in the show that's required any rewrites on your part? Uh, not really. There's one thing that happened, that, like, they put out the, their, like, survival, well, not survival, like, co-op, like, fighting kind of game uh, recently, like, over the summer, that they talk about an event that happened sometime in the past, which I'm actually going to have occurred during this. Which, uh, I'm just, like, kind of ignoring that because they, like, sort of explain how it happened. And it's like, yeah, that's something that I don't really need to talk about in this. Especially since it's something that's in the game, so it's easily ignored compared to the show. How often are you able to get together to play? We usually do it every week. Like, we usually have sessions on Friday evenings. How long do they last? Uh, I'd say roughly, like, two hours. Like, sometimes they go on a little bit longer because we'll usually, like, shoot the shit at the beginning and for, like, a half hour and then get into the session and then just mess around and talk later. But during the session, the party is pretty focused? Pretty much, yeah. Do you think that having a shorter session is better because it keeps the players on point versus a sprawling six-hour-long session? I'd say so. Back when we were in high school, we occasionally had sessions that we'd start at, like, maybe, like, 2 in the afternoon on a Sunday and then go all the way until, like, 8 or so. And just, like, you know, as it is, like, we that was a decade ago. Eventually, we just have other things you need to take care of. So it definitely helps to have it shorter, and it also helps when it doesn't come down to me having to have, like, five hours or so of stuff planned. It's usually the way that the sessions go is, like, we'll have, like, the whole, like, interact with the NPCs and get the bits of story first, and then we'll get to the combat. As predominantly a player of RPGs, do you think your GM style is affected by that? I'd say a little bit. Like, there's certainly times when, like, even yesterday I had a character that I made who was a little bit broken in the sense of kind of being like, hey, let's kind of screw over the players in a bit. Like, how I would try to make a character in order to make them not die horribly or really get hurt that much. And it was even the case of, like, when I told my players how that character was built, they were like, yeah, that's probably not the best move on your part. And, you know, it's just a fact of, like, hey, I don't really run campaigns that much, so there's some parts I'm still learning. Like, if I can explain it briefly, like, the character I designed, like, her 
semblance was basically she could make clones of herself, and they would like kind of like throw away clones to the point where like one hit would take them out. But her and each of them had a variation of a blast called an like uh, all or nothing attack, where basically it wouldn't take your defense into account unless you had specifically a life support self-contained breathing power. Like it, it was like something that you'd use to like survive in like the vacuum of space or underwater. And so it was a case of like, oh, nobody in the party has that. So if she had managed to get those clones made and attack, she could have actually killed the party. And like she was a fellow student, so it would be like something that you really wouldn't do if you're fellow students. So it was a case of like, oh yeah, there's a reason why that summoning power has a stop sign on it saying, hey, this might break your game. And I kind of, like, I regret kind of not paying attention to that and just using that. But she didn't get the clones off, so it all worked out in a sense. Now, I'm not personally familiar with the hero system. Is it a D20 base? No, it's, it's all D6s. Like, you roll D6s to determine skills and determine if you hit something and then rolling for damage. Do you roll in front of the other players? No, uh, we play through Roll20.net, since I'm in North Carolina, two of my friends are in New York, and another is in Virginia. Do you use the setting that lets you hide your roles as the GM? Uh, There is one of those, it's just that I haven't rolled physical dice in years now, so I actually just rolled the dice on my desk. The players have uh, like a chat window in Roll20 that they use, and it shows the result of their roll. Do you fudge the dice often? No, I try to make it be fair of just, oh, that person totally whiffed. Well, that sucks for them. Have you ever fudged the dice to save the players? I haven't had that situation come up just because uh, Mark and Tynan know the rules a lot better than me. So there's cases of like, yeah, I made this character. I thought they were going to be awesome. Oh, right. Mark is a player, and Mark makes really good characters, and he when he gets to actually play a character, he makes sure that that character is at the top of their game. And also Tynan, just in general, just makes characters that put the rest of us to shame. So it's case like, oh yeah, I haven't had to like do anything to make sure the players don't die, because they just like just curb stomp me. But they have fun curb stomping everything, especially in the world of Ruby, when the characters just so effortlessly kill the monster characters. And it's like, okay, well, at least that's reflective of what they're doing, because they're just curb-stomping them into the dirt. So would you say they're more a party of min-maxers? Not really. Like, they, like it's just more that Mark and Tynan really know the rulebook, because they read like both the character creation book and the combat book, like, cover to cover, and those parts where I just skimmed over, even though we've been using 6th edition for three years now? I want to say. I think that was October 2013 that we started using 6th. Like, there's just, like, simple things. Like, I made a character for the session that we had yesterday where her whole thing was she used dual hook shots to basically block attacks at range. And I just simply didn't know that you can't actually block uh, AoE attacks because I just never had had that come up because I've never played a blocking character before. So they basically just did, like, oh, that character seems like they're blocking a lot of attacks. We're just going to unload a bunch of AoEs on them. And it's like, oh, she tries to block that. Oh, she can't block that. She is boned. Do they get into the role-playing aspect? 
Oh yeah, like they have a lot of fun with that, especially since uh, Mark's character is a conspiracy theorist. From uh, in the setting of Ruby, there is a kingdom called Atlas that used to be a different kingdom called Mantle, and it basically like Mantle kind of fell apart at some point, which I established as being, I think I said five years before this campaign takes place. So basically, they're a character who is a conspiracy theorist who believes that like Mantle was just destroyed from the inside out, and they want to try to restore it. So every chance that Mark gets, he basically just has that character just like going on and on about propaganda and stuff. And he actually described her as almost kind of being a bit like a Nazi to the point where some characters like are just completely confused whether to like smile at her absurdity or be really concerned. And it just creates a bunch of silly scenarios of like, oh, this character might actually be kind of terrifying and dangerous for being a 17-year-old person. Do they talk in first or third person in relation to their character? Oh, they talk in first person. Like, it's even to the point where when we're in combat, rather than say, like, oh, Mark, it's your turn to go, we just say, like, oh, Sable, it's your turn to go. Do you do voices for your NPCs? I try to do a little bit of variance with them, but for the most part, it's not really a factor. Like, we don't even really play it up a lot of times in our own games. Like, there's been times where myself, Mark, Tynan, and Greg have all played female characters, just for a bit of variance, but we never try to make our voices sound feminine at all. Is there anything you do for the immersion of the game? Like... Crazy anime background music during fights? No, there was a point where, like, after the first session, I did say this is the part where the weird, crazy anime theme song would be playing, if there was one. But yeah, we've tr- we've done uh, a few campaigns in the past where we have tried to have music at, like, the beginning, like, story sprawl, or during, like, the final battle or something like that. Like, we've done a few using Star Wars Saga, that old rulebook, which I think might be out of print at this point where, like, we tried to have, like, the Star Wars theme playing at the very beginning of it, or, like, at some point in time, we'd, like, I don't know, Duel of the Fates or something like that, but we kind of just stopped using it after a while because it kind of distracts us. So how far along in your campaign are you right now? Uh, we are, like I said, I just finished uh, Session 7 of 20 last night. So, like, their first story arc day, we're basically dealing with some, uh, gang members, and with their leader being a shapeshifter, which is why it was so hard to pin down. And at the moment, they're in the midst of the tournament arc, which is something that they have in Volume 3 of the show. And basically, they're in the tournament because they're trying to like figure out who is trying to contact them about the over, uh, overall villain, in order to like get, try to figure out if they can trust them with the knowledge of what they know. And so basically, once this uh, arc is over, they're going to finally meet that character to learn about the overall arcing, arcing villain. And then volume, like uh, the fourth story arc is basically with dealing with them to take them down. Is the party where you thought they would be at this point? More or less. Like, there's definitely been some like things I've had to change up on the fly just because they're like, oh, hey, we managed to poke holes in the logic here of why like this one character seems like they are a little bit too concerned of what might be going on, and then having that character have to like kind of spill the beans a bit. But yeah, they're still at the point where they don't really know the whole like arcing story, uh, the arcing villain's whole deal is yet. 
So that's still a mystery to them. What's the biggest curveball your players have thrown you? Um, I definitely would say just the fact that, like, for a, a series where the characters are trying to be, like, monster hunters to protect humanity, a few of them kind of don't really care about helping people. So, like, the very first session was a case of, like, uh, Greg's character has a rivalry with this other woman, Wisteria, where basically they were, like, childhood friends, but Wisteria got into, like, a bad crowd, and so they you now see each other as sort of rivals. And the uh, the gang group basically targeted the hotel they were all staying at before they started school and stole the weapons of Wisteria, her friend, and some others. And so Wisteria was basically banging on people's doors, like, trying to, like, just saying, like, oh, it's my weapons missing. And rather than, like, address what was going on, Mark's character, who's, like, semblance is basically paralyzing people that he touches, snuck up behind her, tapped her on the back, and said, that problem solved, let's go back to sleep. Rather than, like, I'm actually addressing it until she did break out of, like, the little paralysis, and then, like, was able to fully explain what was going on. So they were like, all right, I guess we'll go on the adventure. But it was just, like, it was less so a, oh, you guys circumvented the combat and adventure in the session, and more, oh, that's hilarious, because you just used your ability to just paralyze people, and was like, all right, let's go back to sleep. Do you think Mark's primary role as a GM in your other games affects how he plays his characters? I'd say so. It, it definitely lets him like run loose a little bit, as opposed to like he gets to have free reign to have fun and do what he wants, rather than having to worry about addressing like the story or the NPCs for once. So he definitely he definitely has fun when he gets to be a player, but he also has a lot of fun when he gets to be the GM. Now, you're only seven sessions in, but do you have a preference between playing and GMing? Uh, I definitely prefer playing, just because, like, it's a lot easier to learn one character than having to, like, make, like, three or four different characters each week for the sessions, and then have to, like, really remember what each of them is capable of. And, like, especially when it comes to, like, building, like, a fellow team, like, they're facing in the tournament, making sure that those teams actually make sense and work together... Because, like, uh, the combat last time, like, I mentioned how the blocker character was like, oh, right, I can't block AoEs, and she just basically got duped into oblivion. At which point, the rest of the part, the team was like, oh, we're just boned because our blocker's gone. <laughs> we can't do much else. And the other rest of the team just kind of crumpled. So it's definitely a case of when you play one character, you really do know what they're capable of. As opposed to playing, like, oh, these are the characters of the week. I'm not sure what they're, like... I built them, like, a week ago. I kind of forget what they could full of. And sometimes they just get stumped into the dirt. Do you have any specific inspirations when you're making the rival teams or NPCs? Uh, there's some cases where I do, like, coming up with some stuff that's a reference to something or other. Like, uh, one of the characters in that team, Tene, a lot of his abilities were, like, space-themed, but also gem theme because he was a former miner and some of them might have been references to Steven Universe because a lot of the crystal gems are from space so he had some abilities that were just little subtle nods to that or like uh, one of the giant bird monsters called Nevermores has had an ability in the show where it could like pin people to the ground so I made that as an entangle and I simply called it the pin gen 
because it's a bird wing. But yeah, for the most part, I try to like make original ideas with them. Any references to past games you've been involved in? Uh, not really. Like, there's definitely some cases where, like, I would have, like, oh, this character had a really useful power that I had in the past. I know how to use that easily. So I'll just go ahead and recreate that. But for the most part, nah, I try to keep them different. So Link isn't going to be the hero of time? No, he is not going to show up. <laughs> when did you start writing the story for the campaign? Um, I kind of came up with it, like, as I was getting into the beginnings of, oh, is this a thing I actually want to do? Because, like, I kind of came up with the idea of the, like, main villain and his organization pretty much pretty early on. And then from there, I just decided, okay, like, how would they tie into, like, all this stuff that might be going on with the students that the, ca- that the party made? As well as, like, the one background event that happened. I dropped the die, sorry. Uh, at some point in the past of the show, which one is like, okay, like maybe they might be involved with that, and therefore, like, let's introduce that to the story overall as well. But, like, it's, it's changed a little bit over time, as I've, like, also included other characters that might also have some involvement in it. Like, uh, one thing that they mentioned in the show is that, like, the animal species of people, the faunus, had a revolution going on, so I've also incorporated that into going on at this point in time as well. Is there anything that Mark does as a GM that you've been inspired by to fold into your own GMing practices? He definitely uh, spends a little bit more time with actually like developing the NPCs and describing like what they look like and everything. And there's been some characters where I would just, like, say their name and, like, what kind of weapon they have, but not really explain much of. So in more recent sessions, I have been trying to, like, broaden out some of the NPCs a little bit more. Like, uh, one of the fellow teams that is at the school with them that's a year older than them is Team Algae, which is Aqua, Lilac, and Grullo. And I've been trying to, like, make them into, like, more of, like, the upperclassmen that are, like, still interact with the party on a frequent basis. So I've been trying to, like, broaden on them a little bit more. But a lot of the characters are like, yeah, I kind of didn't describe them as much. Have you had any NPCs that you intended to have a minor role kind of get adopted by the party and take on a much larger role than originally intended? Uh, There was one. The innkeeper from the hotel that they were at at the very first session was kind of meant as more of, like, a throwaway character. But because he, like, kind of inadvertently allowed the uh, heist to occur under his watch, uh, Marx instead, like, started taking it upon himself to make sure that his place was shut down. And so it's been, like, a constant thing every so often. I'm like, oh, so what's the, pro- what's the uh, progress on uh, my character getting that place shut down because of, like, my bureaucratic checks I've been making? And it's the funniest thing because, like, that was, like, the villain of the first story arc, like the gang leader, using his shapeshifting in disguise to let the heist occur, since he was trying to get his hands on those weapons. And so Mark has just, like, inadvertently been going after this poor innocent guy who wasn't actually there the whole time, even though they actually learned later on that that wasn't him. But it's just been this funny, like, little ongoing joke about this 17-year-old getting this guy's entire business destroyed, all because he got kidnapped and replaced by a shapeshifter.
So this owner is going to be the final villain back for revenge? No, it's just like this dude. It's, it's just a funny thing that like they just decided to, oh, screw this guy. We're going to make sure his business gets shut down. The cabbage guy of the Ruby universe? Essentially. When you are creating new NPCs for a storyline coming up, where do you start? The basically the easiest way, point to start is figuring out what their semblance is, because I kind of always want the semblance to be some, like a power that hasn't shown up, or is one that's showed up, but this one's like ratcheted up to 11 to make it really stand out. And I'm not sure if you can hear my ferrets in the background, I apologize. But, uh... It's basically a case of it's easiest to figure out what like this person's like main natural ability might be, and then go from there and work off that. Like uh, the next group that they're fighting, is, I don't know if that's my third again, but yeah, sorry. The one of the characters that they're facing in the next arc of the tournament, Aqua, I settled that her uh, semblance is liquidation, which basically means she has uh, desolidification. Which basically like makes it be that people's attacks will go right through her, but you can't interact with the physical world. But it's basically being like flavor text as like, oh, her body kind of turns into water at times, and maybe she has some abilities that she can only use while the solid. So basically, like it, in a hero, you basically have like uh, stun, body, and endurance as your like main characteristics. Where stun is like non-lethal damage, body is lethal, and endurance is. You know, basically, like, your power pool for, like, oh, I can use this amount of attacks before I need to, like, take a break. And so it might just be a case of her powers that she can use while desolidified just take up a lot of endurance, so she might eventually have to break out of that, or else she might just kind of pass out to a certain degree. And so from there, I try to figure out, like, okay, if they have, in her case, if she has, like, a water ability, what's, like, a kind of a fitting water weapon? Oh, she might have, like, a harpoon gun where she actually, like, fires out the harpoon head. Like, as, like, a spear. And, of course, the most difficult question, how do you come up with a name? Uh, the names are actually probably the easier part of the Ruby universe, because, as they explain with uh, the war that took place 80 years before the show began, it was a war on self-expression, so people started naming their kids after the most fundamental level of expression, that being color. So, like, a lot of characters in that universe have, like, names that relate to, like, their hair color or their eye color. Like, the main character, Ruby, has red hair, and her party member's wife has white hair, Blake has black hair, and Yang has yellow hair. So that's basically, like, an easy way that you can figure out of, like, okay, how do we want, like, to make this character, like, really stand out? Like, oh, maybe they have, like, like, in the previous case of, like, Team Mist, uh, Midori had green hair, Soleil had yellow hair, and Tene had, like, a brownish gray hair. So it's a case of like, oh, the names are actually probably an easier part of it than anything. So, Google Translate plus Caller. More or less. Uh, it's, it's more like the name has to be like not just a color, but like evocative of a color. Like there's been characters that have names like Crow and Raven just because they're evocative of like the color black. And also like uh, characters like Cinder, who is more just because she has a lot of fire abilities and has red hair. You mentioned that Mark tends to know the rules more than you. Does he ever correct you, or does he try not to step on your toes as a GM? 
he definitely corrects me when it's like some parts of the book that we definitely know for sure, like I'm getting wrong. But there's also some parts in Hero, just like in D and D three point five, that are a little nebulous. Like uh, in the most recent session with the character Midori, her whole thing was that she could also tunnel underground. And Greg's character has their semblance basically be that they can teleport their uh, little grenade weapons that they use around. And so, like, even though his grenades really would need the uh, advantage indirect to go wherever he wanted to the point where they could go underground, we still sort of flubbed it a little bit. Like, well, you can teleport them anywhere, so technically you could teleport them underground to where she is. But it's so, like, that was a little bit more nebulous just because, like, indirect more for. It's like a normal blast would be like just something that shoots out from you and hits the target, but indirect it could be it originates from a different point, or it originates from your character, but it can arc around like walls and stuff. But because his whole thing was I teleport my grenades as the flavor text, we were like, yeah, it would make sense you could just teleport it underground. But there's definitely cases of like, oh yeah, even though you made this character to block everything, they can't block AOEs because that's just in the rule book. Because AOEs are a thing you would ever need to have enough defense to take, or you need to have enough dex to just dodge out of the way, or else you're just destroyed, more or less. So it's a sign of GM respect to not call out the GM when there's a role dispute? More or less, yeah. Like, there's there's definitely parts of, like, even throughout the years of us playing Dungeons & Dragons 3.5, like, we never fully understood the grab rules. Just because they were so weird and archaic to us that sometimes we would just like be like, okay, home rule now is this how this works? Just like uh, in Hero, like we have a home rule where in every hero campaign you basically establish every man's skills, which are like basic things everyone can do. Like everyone can climb, everyone can to a certain degree like shadow people or use stealth. But there might be cases of like this campaign it wouldn't be fitting. But then in a uh, hero in general, you would usually spend like three points to build up a characteristic from an everyman skill, where the role is like an eight or less to succeed to get up to an eleven. Our house rule is because they are everyman's instead, you only spend two points to get them up to the eleven or less basic uh, role, more or less. Just because it kind of makes more sense if it's an everyman that everyone can do, it should cost a little bit more than any other skill. Do you think home rules are a sign of a system's weakness? There's definitely times where the rule book is a little weird with that. Like, uh, it wasn't until Hero 6 Edition that the different characteristics, like, uh, Hero has a weird thing where instead of having, like, a base attack bonus, you instead have offensive combat value, defensive combat value, and then respective ones of those for mental attacks. Where in three in five uh, edition of Hero, they were based on your dexterity and your ego, respectively. So basically, there was no reason for you to ever not have a character that didn't have an obscene amount of dexterity, since you get more OCV and DCV. But that basically caused a lot of things of like, well, dex is also the main characteristic that determines the order of combat. So why would you ever make a character that had low dex? So in 6th edition, they addressed that by making OCV and DCV be separate, where you have to point, like, put 5 points into each to increase them by 1, but dexterity is still important, it still determines the order of combat, as well as like dex-based skills. 
So they definitely, like, fixed things like that. But, you know, it's still a case of, like, sometimes it's a little bit weird not having character six built on that. Since you could have a character that has, like, really low strength, but still can hit really easily, and also still just be really slow. As a player, do you prefer a point-by system? Uh, I've never used point-by systems in the past up until we started using Hero. But for what it's worth, just because Hero lets us make whatever kind of characters and campaign possible, I definitely do prefer it a little bit more. Especially since, like, in D&D 3.5 and even Star Wars Saga to a lesser degree, you had your class and you had to, like, basically go along the same progression as, like, any wizard was kind of the same as any other wizard to a certain degree. It only depended on different spells you had. So, like, none of us ever played Fighter in 3.5 just because, like, Fighter was like, oh, you get a bunch of feats, but not much else. For your players creating their characters for this Ruby campaign... Did they create their characters independently, or did you have a group character creation? We actually did group character creation for the first time, more or less. Like, they all sort of had a general idea of where they wanted to go with the characters, but for once, rather than... In the past, we usually would make the characters separate and, like, talk over, like, email or whatever of, like, where we were going towards with the character... But in this case, they were like, well, if these characters are on the team going to school together and working together, they should, like, uh, complement each other's abilities, more or less. So we decided to actually have, like, a Discord, or not Discord, Mumble call, but, like, the week before it started, and actually hashed out the characters in detail that night together. Is that something you would like to continue moving forward? It's definitely a nice change of pace. So, like, the campaign we played before this, which uh, was basically, like, what if D&D was, like, the high, had the high lethality and more, like, not magical aspect of, like, something like Game of Thrones, we made our characters individually where, like, Tynan's character was a cleric, I was a wizard, and uh, Greg was, like, a dex-based fighter. And, like, that's basically the extent we knew about our characters, so we ended up to the point where, like, oh, like, my character's kind of screwed because the other characters are melee fighters, and I am just basically here in the background by myself getting a bunch of arrows shot at me. So, I be- like, after that, we had to basically, like, fix up our characters a bit to make sure I didn't die horribly all the time. Like, over the campaign, I had to, like, give my character shrinking and flight in order to make sure that, and invisibility to make sure I just didn't get a shot with every single crossbow imaginable. So you made Ant-Man. Mm, kind of. Uh, my character was like, I, he was a wizard, but he was more of a mentalist. Like, his whole thing is like, he did mental blasts and mental entangles to basically lock people up in their minds and make them just easy targets for the rest of the party to just make called headshots on and just basically chop people's heads off. Uh, so it's basically a case of like, oh, okay, if that's going to be my whole thing of just setting people up for the kill, I should be like as far away from melee fighters and as hard for. Like range characters to hit, which is why I built the invisibility, the flight, and the shrinking. And I just basically just hang out, invisible, just locking people up in their minds and setting them up to have their heads chopped off. Do you have a favorite moment as a GM? Probably not as much as GM. Like, that first session of Mark tapping the character with Sari on the back to put her in paralysis was probably the best so far of this campaign. But I do have a pretty great moment from the first campaign I was in as a player, if you want to hear that. 
I'm sure all the insiders would. Uh, so basically, in the very first campaign I was in of D&D 3.5, the one that my character Link was in, uh, one of my older friends who was in that campaign but doesn't play with us anymore, Avi, was playing a favorite soul, which the favorite soul is like the wiz- the sorcerer equivalent of a cleric, more or less. Like they have the whole like more spells per day but slower spell progression, and they're locked to like only a few select spells rather than having all the spells available to them. And his character at one point died, and the rest of the party didn't have enough money to pay for a normal resurrection for him. So we basically had the flub slash house rule in a like randomized reincarnation spell where he got resurrected but as a different race. So Mark took out a D twenty and started assigning different races to each of the like numbers on the D twenty. And he had like normal stuff like elf, dwarf, half orc on it. And then at a certain point he was just getting getting a little bit nuts, like, I don't know, like Wolfman, I guess we'll toss on Badger, because that's funny. And as soon as he said Badger, I was like, oh, 10 gold says it gets Badger, because that's just hilarious. And he rolled Badger. So, like, we basically were laughing hysterically for a good hour at the fact that our cleric was now a fuzzy little Badger. But the funnier part is he got stronger as a Badger. Because, like, he was a small character now, so he was harder to hit. He just had to take, like, uh, whatever that druid thing is, natural spell that lets them, like, cast spells in an animal form. And he got, like, a little, like, badger-sized armor set made for him. So he was just harder to hit in general. And he also got, like, a bonus to constitution, because badgers have high constitution. And so by the end of that campaign, when we were, like, 16th level, he got a spell that let him, like, fly around and shoot lightning from his eyes as a fuzzy little badger. It was, like, the weirdest thing imaginable, because he was so pissed off when he got reincarnated as a badger. But then he was like, this is actually pretty rad, because I'm a tough-as-hell badger shooting lightning from my eyes. And that's kind of how I knew that d was the thing for me, because you could just get random stuff like that happening every so often. Kind of makes me want to play in a red wall setting. Yeah. We're going to start wrapping up, but before we do... I'm going to ask you some questions from the Pivo questionnaire designed by Bernal Pivo. What is your favorite word? Mm, I guess, uh, because that's the first thing I could think of. It definitely lets me uh, have a little bit more time to think whenever it comes to something that my players might be like trying to pull off without me expecting them to. What is your least favorite word? At this point, probably tremendous because fuck Donald Trump. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Probably stories that really like involve the characters' backstories and just seeing them like adapt to the world around them, like despite their characters, like complications or backstories. Does inspiration to write for the Ruby campaign come out of nowhere, or is there a way to jumpstart that creativity? It kind of just comes from nowhere. Like I, like I said, I kind of had the idea of what the villains in general would do throughout the campaign, and so I'm just kind of working around that and making it try to make sense. What turns you off? Uh... 
there's there's some point like there's a certain point in the character creation process where in hero you need to make a character have complications which basically is like here's like little aspects of their character or their backstory and there's some cases where it's just kind of hard to figure out the complications for a certain character especially since like a lot of these characters are like oh i'm here for like tournament i'm here for literally one session and we'll never show up again so it's a case of like a little bit difficult to really pin down what the character might be all about as a person outside of just this one appearance for them. What is your favorite curse word to hear from your players? Probably at this point, just saying them, hearing them say, ah, shit. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Honestly, that kind of a weird direction of it, but probably the sound of my ferret jumping from his hammock down to the floor of his cage to wake himself up. Because it's just like a sudden bump to the point where it's like, oh, that's just my ferret being silly. What sound or noise do you hate? As I've gotten older, I've kind of gotten a little bit more disgusted by, like, burping sounds, I guess. What game system would you like to attempt? I definitely do want to try the Sprawl at some point, mostly because, like, I don't know if you listen to Austin Walker's Friends at the Table series, but he's based in their second season of that, uh, in their Counterweight game. They start with Mech Warrior, but it doesn't work out, so they quickly move over to the Sprawl, which at that point I think was an experimental game that wasn't out fully. But it's definitely, it sounds like an interesting session. Or not such a uh, campaign to do because the GM doesn't actually roll dice. Like, they just basically, like, say what happens and the players react to it, or they react to the players' choices. So, it definitely seems like it'd be something that'd be kind of neat to try just because you don't roll dice. Like, it's more of like, more like off the cuff role playing kind of deal as opposed to letting the dice determine what happens. Have you ever done a freeform RPG? Uh, not really. Like, we've always had one that is based on the rule books, and we don't ever, like, just make up, like, an entirely homebrew homebrew system or anything like that. When your game concludes, or when your campaign concludes, what would you like to hear from your players? At the end of the day, it's mostly just knowing that they had fun. Like, there's been times where... I definitely have kind of fumbled over when I'm trying to get across to the characters or fumbled combat. But as long as they just seem like they are having fun and laughing and just say that it was a good time overall, that's enough for me. Thank you for joining us in the studio today, Steve. Thank you for having me. Feel free to follow the show on Twitter at ITMS underscore podcast. Head on over to AudioEntropy.com to check out other great shows, like the Dr. Fate guided tour of the DCAU all along the Watchtower, going pear-shaped with Mike and Matt, or recently debuted Chris and Molly's Movie Night. I've been your host, Moon Rules, and remember, saying you're going to take a break from a game for a week or two is easy, restarting is the hard part.